Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of January 9th, 2015. I'm creator and host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. We seek to provide listeners with access to analysis of the major stories shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available on the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We can also now be heard on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. On this week's program, the first broadcast of the new year, we're going to hear excerpts from some of the more exceptional interviews conducted over the course of 2014. Over the course, uh, let's see... Well, mainstream media has uh, traditionally been notorious in terms of the way it typically distorts our current reality and political culture, and 2014 was no exception. So for the next hour, we're going to examine a number of stories that uh, from fra- flashpoints around the war globe, uh, the war agenda being prosecuted in the Middle East and former Soviet Union, the extent of the climate catastrophe, as well as the passing of a unique and influential independent journalist. We're going to start our review of 2014 with a look at Canada's historic relationship with Israel. In January, Canada's Prime Minister Stephen Harper took part in a seven-day visit of the Middle East, which included four days in Israel. The visit reportedly cost Canadian taxpayers $239,000 and included an entourage of more than 200 people, which included representatives from prominent Jewish organizations in um, in Canada. The Harper government has distinguished itself as the most Israel-friendly Canadian government in recent history, but is this stance significantly at odds with our other Canadian governments historically? Well, not according to Eve Engler, the Canadian foreign policy critic and author of Canada and Israel, Building Apartheid. He wrote an article in January explaining that Canada's embrace of Zionism is rooted in Christianity and the British Empire's desire, historically, to maintain geostrategic dominance in the Middle East. This interview aired last February. In the late 1800s, a preeminent Zionist, a Christian Zionist, was a man by the name of Henry Wentworth Monk, who called for a dominion of Israel, uh, similar to the dominion of Canada as part of the British Empire. And uh, he was uh, a, a fairly prominent Ottawa business person and uh, campaigned on the issue uh, uh, for decades. Uh, uh, he claims he actually influenced uh, uh, Lord Balfour the, with the infamous uh, Balfour Declaration. Um, that's probably uh, uh, debatable. With time, uh, larger segments, uh, growing segments of the Jewish community uh, came to, uh, to support uh, Zionism and, and obviously Israel later on uh, after the creation of the state, uh, but the roots definitely go back to a Christian and, 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 and British um, uh, imperial thinking. And to, you know, until today, you bring it forward to today. You know, one of the things you saw with Harper's visit 
uh, to Israel, uh, most of the focus, the critical focus, was that, oh, this was just Harper pandering to the Jewish community and trying to win some votes in a, um, in a, in a couple of ridings uh, where there's you know somewhat significant number of Jewish people. Personally, I, I think that's very much overblown. There's obviously a couple of ridings where there's you know 20% of the, of the uh, voters are Jewish. Um, uh, there was also some comment about how uh, Harper's evangelical uh, background, and you know, Christian Zionism has 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 different currents to it, and has um, taken on a very, in today's terms, has taken on a very um, kind of right wing uh, uh, evangelical uh, at the at the most extreme uh, that all Jews need to return to the Middle East, and then there'll be the second coming of Jesus, and then Jews will have to decide if they. If they convert, uh, or they get, you know, or they burn in hell, uh, you know, what is that ultimately you know, quite a very, quite an anti-Semitic, uh, um, kind of, uh, 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 uh thinking. Um, uh, but, uh, so, so there was some comment about the, 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 uh, Harper's pro sort of trying to, I guess, pander to the Jewish community or try to mobilize his evangelical base. There was almost no comment about how uh, what I think is still continues to be an important component of Canada's pro-Israel policy, which is that Israel, um, and this is articulated internally in 1947 when Canada was involved in UN discussions about the creation of Israel and was articulated uh, in, the, in, the, in the mid-1950s by Lester Pearson, then the external affairs minister, again internally, that Israel was seen as a bastion of Western power uh, in the Middle East. Uh, uh, and that it was basically a geopolitical ally. Um, that is basically not discussed when talking about Harper's pro-Israel policy, and I think there's, it's, it's, it's not a coincidence that the most pro-Israel uh, forces within this country are also tend to be the most pro-European, uh, North American, uh, Western uh, imperialist uh, governments. I think that that's an important component of Harper's pro-Israel policy that doesn't get discussed, um, and there's a, you know, a long history there. Whether, you know, what proportion of this pro-Israel policy is because of a, a trying to woo Jewish voters, trying to mobilize the evangelical base, and being, you know, pro-imperialist, um, I think you can, have, you can have a debate about exactly, you know, what percentage uh, is the motivating factor, um, but I think that's, you know, those three are important components of this uh, Harper's uh, pro-Israel policy. And that was Eve Engler. A major theme explored this year was that of U.S. and other Western powers using NGO organizations as fronts for interference and the undermining of national sovereignty in strategically sensitive regions. In March, I spoke with James Petrus, who is the uh, Bartle Emeritus Professor of Sociology at Binghamton University. He addressed the root of the anti-government protests happening in Venezuela and Latin America generally. There's absolutely no doubt uh, Washington has poured in uh, approximately 10 to $20 million a year uh, through its uh, aid agencies, the National Endowment for Democracy, the Democratic Institute, the Republican Institute, uh, Freedom House, uh, they have been uh, funding uh, NGOs, so-called, uh, that are engaged in opposition activities. 
They have uh, supported the military uh, civilian coup, business coup of 19, 2002. They supported the, uh, the lockout of the oil industry in 2003. They have funded uh, groups that organize a referendum, which was defeated in uh, 2004. Uh, they have been vociferous in their propaganda messages that have been uh, in favor of uh, the uh, protesters, including in the present period. They've given wholehearted support to some of the most violent and destructive uh, activities engaged in by street fighters and others in uh, throughout Venezuela. Uh, we have no word from the United States uh, uh, denouncing the assassination of seven policemen and National Guardsmen by snipers who are allied with the uh, U.S.-supported opposition. Uh, the uh, opposition is not what the uh, Secretary of State uh, Kerry claims. Uh, they've uh, already burned between 500 and 600 buildings, including uh, uh, social welfare distribution centers, uh, publicly funded supermarkets with subsidized food, health clinics. Uh, they've assaulted uh, delivery trucks. They've uh, burned down uh, police vehicles. They've uh, engaged in uh, barricades that have blocked traffic and have uh, assaulted workers going to work or cleaning up the debris and uh, barricades. So I, I think it's very clear that Washington is very deeply involved, very much involved in financing, very much engaged in organizing and funding direct action groups, as well as electoral campaigns and propaganda campaigns and media outlets. So I, I think it's impossible to say that the U.S. is, 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 a, is, a, uh, is uh, out of the picture here. It's very much deeply involved, and uh, its goal is to overthrow the democratically elected government. The recent escalation of uh, violent uh, protest, if we can call it that, I call it terrorism, uh, is uh, in the fact that they lost two recent elections. They lost the presidential elections by a close margin, and then they were trounced in the uh, municipal and state elections in December by 10 points, 10 percentage points, 55 to 45. And I realize that Having lost 18 of 19 elections, their chances of taking power or replacing the government through electoral channels are virtually nil. And so what I think they've decided on as a strategy is to create chaos, insecurity, and especially engage in violence that cuts the link between the government and the people. And that's why they're targeting the social programs. In April, on the 20th anniversary of the Rwandan genocide, I had a chance to speak with Robin Philpot, the author of Rwanda and the New Scramble for Africa from Tragedy to Useful Imperial Fiction. 
He outlines his argument that the Rwandan killings were initiated by the Tutsi-dominated RPF, that they were responsible for the deaths of the Rwandan and Burundian presidents, and how, and how the media and political entities have successfully covered up the truth. Uh, war had started up again after the shooting down of the plane carrying two um, African heads of state, which is never seen before, uh, is you have two heads of state assassinated at the same time, and nobody has bothered to find out who did it. But I'll get back to that. Um, there were debates in the UN and the Security Council, and he said that any attempts to send in troops, or any will to send in troops to implement the peace agreement, because there was a peace agreement that had been signed in 1993, and it was in effect until the, the plane was shot down and the war was, was um, resumed. And he said any attempts um, by different countries, African, European countries, including France, um, to send in troops to ensure, basically to, to, to create, to um, obtain a ceasefire and to apply the ceasefire, and to apply the power-sharing agreement that was part of the agreement, the accords, of, uh, the peace accord, were, were stymied by the United States and the U.K., and they did everything they could to prevent the U.N. from sending in troops, for, from answering the call that Romuald Dallaire uh, says he was making. And so, uh, so like... <clears throat> Why were they doing that? That's the question. Why was the United States doing it? It wasn't the international community. It was the United States and the U.K. The answer there is that they were, they had, they had sponsored a peace accord in, in, that came to a peace agreement signed in August 1993. That peace agreement was, was held until the shooting down of the plane and the immediate resumption of war. In fact, it had started Almost, they started. The troops had started moving before the plane came down, which showed that the RPF knew exactly that the, knew that the, um, the assassination was good, that, they, that was going to happen. But basically, they knew they were going to do it. Um, and the United States had decided they were they were they they abandoned the peace agreement and said we're going to pull for this side. Um, and this, in other words, they decided we want the RPF to win and have a decisive victory. We don't want power sharing. Um, the strategic interest of the United States there and the UK is domination of that part of, of uh, Central Africa. Um, and the only way that could happen was not to have a power sharing agreement. So w what they did, they themselves scuttled the peace agreement and they chose to back the RPF at whatever the cost. Now, what about the killings, you might ask? Um, and everybody knows that there were massive killings. Um, and But the only people in Rwanda who could have stopped that kind of killing were the army and the gendarmes um, and the political leaders. Um, but they could not do so because they were engaged in a war to the finish with a very powerful military machine, the RPF, that was backed, armed, and... Back diplomatically, politically, and militarily by the United States and the UK. I try and explain in my book the nature of the war that began in 1990, a bloody, 
destructive war that began in 1990 when the Ugandan army, branches of entire regiments of the Ugandan army, invaded Rwanda in 1990. Nobody talks about that. That was Robin Philpott. Um, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, the DPRK, otherwise known as North Korea, is arguably among the most demonized countries in the world. The country has been portrayed as a nuclear threat, a human rights abuser, belligerent, and an economic basket case. Henri Ferron is a Ph.D. candidate in international law at Tsinghua University, Beijing. In May, he wrote an article which points to the idea that the collapse network, excuse me, the collapse narrative is based on faulty data, comprehensive sanctions from the West and the U.S. in particular, and an incentive on the part of the U.S. and its allies to portray this enemy country in the most negative light possible. I had a chance to speak with Ferron in late October about his thesis. What hurts uh, the development of North Korea are, are financial sanctions imposed by the U.S. because of the, the clout, the financial clout of the U.S. and the world. Effectively, it, it makes uh, North Korea a, a pariah in the financial world, and banks avoid uh, transacting with, uh, with them, even Chinese banks avoid tra- transacting with North Korea for fear of um, losing, losing their license in, in the U.S. or being forbidden to trade in U.S. dollars. Mm. So this, this is a... This causes a huge problem for, for North Korea because you need to be able to access international banks if you want to conduct international trade effectively because it, you'll very rarely be able to find an international partner who'd be willing to transact to, to a national bank. You mentioned so in, in, you mentioned yeah. in your article that there was a Macanese bank that had been uh, – uh, had been uh, uh, th- th- that a massive bank run had been triggered on suspicion that there was uh, money laundering that with y- yes, with the, uh, the North Korean uh, exactly so uh, there's uh, this bank in Macau the the Bank of Delta Asia um, there was public suspicion by the U.S. Treasury that it might be money laundering doing doing forbidden prohibited financial transactions on account of of North Korea. Um, the investigation of the U.S. effectively destroyed the bank's reputation and triggered a, a massive bank run. There was an independent audit that was commissioned by the Macanese government, uh, and it was, and it didn't find any any major violations to it. However, the U.S. Treasury decided to blacklist the bank, effectively destroying its reputation. And other banks, seeing what happened to the Banco Delta Asia, decided to sever their ties with North Korea. And that includes, again, Chinese banks, Japanese banks, Mongolian banks, Vietnamese banks, Singaporean banks. So although there was no direct threat from the U.S. to those to those other banks, in the financial world, because in the financial world your reputation and the trust are so important, the fear of suffering a similar fate was enough to to, to very much isolate uh, North Korea and to stifle its economic development. 
So um, it's uh, it, it, it you could say that it stunts um, both both the economy and uh, if if we take into account the food problems that that North Korea has had, then maybe even its population. That was Henri Ferron. A major focus of Western interventionist foreign policy in 2014 has been the rise of the extremist Islamic group known as the Islamic State. IS has enjoyed spectacular successes overthrowing and controlling territory from northern Syria to the outskirts of Baghdad in Iraq. Geopolitical analyst Professor Michel Chosodovsky contends that the rise of IS is not a miscalculation on the part of the U.S.-NATO alliance, but in fact a deliberate strategy to re-engineer the region to advance their imperial aims there. Here he is from an interview aired in mid-June. We have to understand, first of all, what is this Islamic State of Iraq and, and the Levant, or Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. It, it is a terrorist entity originally associated to al-Qaeda. It was formed in... Um, Going back to 2003, it is part of a U.S. intelligence op to create, fund, uh, and equip these terrorist organizations. Um, and up until last year, uh, this was essentially an Iraq-based uh, terrorist entity involved in various uh, uh, operations, uh, including, uh, the, you know, the... the, the bomb explosions, the attacks, the, the, and so on, uh, which were waged uh, within Iraq. And now this, uh, this terrorist entity is, um, is involved or has been involved in Syria for, for the last year. And uh, it is not by any means an independent entity. And that's what is important in, in, in understanding this conflict. Uh, the United States pulls the strings within the ranks of these terror brigades. There are Western military um, uh, advisors, uh, special forces. Often uh, these are special forces uh, of private security companies, but they are in liaison with U.S. Uh, NATO command structures, and they do not... the the these brigades uh, may have a semblance of, of independence, but ultimately they're serving, um, they're serving a geopolitical agenda. And uh, the situation which is evolving now in Iraq is that you have a confrontation between the forces of the Maliki government on the one hand and the terrorist entity, and both sides are supported and financed by the United States of America. And now what is emerging uh, is uh, ultimately a situation where the United States is no longer portrayed as the aggressor nation. Uh, it is potentially uh, presented as the mediator in a civil conflict between Sunni and Shiite. But when we look at the broader context, uh, we come to the we come to a different understanding, namely that that the United States is supporting both sides, and the objective is to trigger 
sectarian warfare within Iraq uh, and ultimately uh, leading to the destruction of Iraq as a nation state um, and the fracture, the political fracturing of, of Iraq along, uh, along um, ethnic, uh, ethnic and religious lines leading possibly to the formation of, of three separate entities, uh, a Sunni caliphate on the one hand, um, and a Shia republic, which would be the, which would, would be made up of, of uh, whatever is salvaged from the Baghdad government, and then the Kurdistan Republic, which is already de facto in, in the northern region. It's an independent state. So that what I think is, is unfolding is the transformation of a country into an open territory, uh, fractured. It's an engineered process, um, and it is there to serve uh, both uh, strategic as well as, as economic interests by the uh, aggressor nation. That was Professor Michel Chosodovsky of the uh, director of the Center for Research on Globalization. June sixth marked the set. Excuse me. June sixth marked the seventieth anniversary of the famous landing of Allied troops on the beaches of Normandy, sparking a resurgence of interest in the Second World War. Major sectors of the Western world see the involvement of the U.S., Canada, and its allies in the war as principally a defense of democracy and freedom with the Allied landings on the beaches of Normandy as the pivotal turning point that put an end to the threat of fascism. Richard Saunders is the coordinator of the Ottawa-based Coalition Opposed to the Arms Trade. In a June interview, he argued that in addition to the well-known abuses of Japanese Canadians and the rejection of Jewish refugees from Europe, Canada had interned Jewish refugees sent to them by Britain. He also noted the presence of 150 or so slave labor camps in the early 30s, where poor single males were forcibly relocated. Uh, the Canadian government deported uh, about 15,000 people between 1930 and 1933, so about 5,000 people per year. Between 1900 and 1930, about 25,000 uh, people were deported, and a lot of them were deported because they were considered to be radicals, to be um, communists or anarchists or labor activists, and this was a way of getting them getting rid of them um, and sending them back mostly to Southern Europe or Eastern Europe where they had come from uh, sometimes many years previously. I feel that there are some eerie parallels there between, you know, whether taking people and, and putting them on camps or, you know, deporting them uh, and uh, what was happening in, in, in Hitler's Germany. Well, Hitler did the same thing. He rounded up the, 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 um, the first camps that Hitler created were, of course, for um, I mean, they they they, um, they did ex ex they executed uh, disabled people, but they, the first camps were really for um, communists and uh, anarchists and labor activists, and they rounded them up. Uh, and that their camp started, I think, in 1932, so or 33 maybe. I think Dachau was uh, initi uh, initiated in 1933, so it was around the same time. I think Canada was even a little bit earlier. We had internment camps, but we initially called them concentration camps during the First World War. 
of course, we had the reservations, which were a kind of uh, way of rounding people up and forcing them to stay within restricted areas. If Native people were found off of the reserves, they could be jailed if they didn't have the proper paperwork. But in, during World War One, Canada had tens of thousands of people in these uh, what we called then concentration camps, and they were scattered in remote areas all across Canada. Many of them were used later in the 30s as the relief camps. The same, they were the same uh, physical camps. Um, but in World War One, even after World War One ended, this is an interesting thing. After World War One ended, many of these concentration camps in Canada were kept were kept uh, going. So for a year and a half after the war ended, and that these camps, remember, were ostensibly for keeping prisoners of war or people who might be supportive of the enemy during the war. Even after the war ended, they kept these camps going. And why did they keep them going? It was because they were fearful that these guys in the camps were Bolsheviks, that they were communists, that they were going to support a revolution in Canada. So we kept them in concentration camps uh, uh, because of the, you know, I mean, there was a, uh, the revolution in, uh, in Soviet Russia. And Canada also sent sent uh, thousands of troops, uh, I believe about 4,200 troops, to fight in the Civil War that happened after the uh, Soviet Revolution in 1919. There were 14 countries that invaded uh, Soviet Russia to try to contain or uh, stop that uh, spread of that, of the evil red uh, menace. And that was uh, Richard Saunders of the Coalition Opposed to the Arms Trade. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour broadcast out of Winnipeg on campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on partner radio stations on community communities across Canada and the United States. You can download our show from the website globalresearch.ca. We can also be heard on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. This week's program is a special review of some of the more provocative interviews from the past year. Two thousand fourteen also marked the one hundredth anniversary of the of the First World War. During Remembrance Week, the Global Research News Hour interviewed Canadian historian Jacques Powells. Uh, the author of the 2000 book, The Myth of the Good War, America in the Second World War. Far from being a war for freedom and democracy, Powell seems to see the Great War, World War I, as intended to do the opposite. What was the interplay between World War that, that war and the, that, the rise of the Bolsheviks? Well, here we go. Here we are dealing with the dialectic of war revolution. Some historians prefer to talk about the First World War and stay away from the topic of the Russian Revolution, the Bolshevik Revolution, which was part two of the Russian Revolution, part one being the one in spring of 1917, the Bolsheviks coming to power in October 1917. Um, the war was intended by the elites, was watered by the elites of Europe, was in many ways provoked by the elites of Europe, who were hoping that war would serve as an antidote to revolution. Uh, but in fact, it's one of the ironies of history that war produced exactly the opposite. Rather than putting an end to this specter of revolution, chasing, uh, chasing away once and for all the specter of revolution, as war was supposed to have done, 
the war actually would end up producing the revolution. And that's a, that's a great irony in a sense, but uh, it's understandable if you know what the war actually ended up doing to people instead of being short and victorious and basically ending up ending up reinforcing the existing social political systems in Germany, Russia, Britain, France, and so on, you know, it basically undermined the loyalty of people to the established order. It undermined their, their faith in their leaders, in the political, religious leaders, and so on. They did all of that, and as a result of that, eventually it made many, many people, in some countries more and other countries fewer, basically... Um, ready, eager, and willing to overthrow the old system, in other words, make a revolution. And these revolutions actually happened in quite a few countries. We shouldn't forget that. The revolution succeeded in Russia, where the Bolsheviks took control of it. But we should not forget that there was also a big revolution at the end of the war in Germany, which came close to succeeding and was had to be smothered in blood. And very few people realized that even in Great Britain, there was a kind of revolutionary situation at the end of 1918, at the beginning of 1919, with major disturbances and strikes and problems in cities like Liverpool and Glasgow and Belfast, even the mutiny in one of the ships of the Royal Navy and so on. And uh, that problem could only be resolved by bringing in major social and uh, political reforms, like an extension of the, of the suffrage and uh, bringing in the eight-hour workday and so on. Uh, these concessions were needed to, to basically defuse a, a revolutionary situation. So there is a, a direct, you know, direct causal relationship between the war, the First World War, and the revolution. The revolution, not only the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, but the revolutions in general, and the revolutionary movements. And then the war also caused the, the reforms, a certain amount of democratization, which also the elites had hoped to stop before the war by means of war, but which, again, the war forced them to, to introduce even more democracy than before. Uh, the way I see it is that the war, the First World War, was not a war for democracy, as it was called by Wilson. It actually was much more a war against democracy. But, of course, uh, you, you had to use slogans to sell the war to people. You could hardly tell people that it was a war against, you know, an attempt to give them more power and more input in government. So we had to pretend that it was for democracy. That's not really true. That's the rationale that were invented. It was told that it was a war to end all wars, and that wasn't true. And indeed, I think uh, we also rationalized our entry into the war and our role in the war in many other ways. In the case of Canada, for example, the idea was, was, was conjured up that our contribution to the war made Canada really the nation it is today. You know, the idea that on the battlefield of Vinny, Canada was born. And I think this is absolute mythology. I think this is not true. I think a country like Canada did not need a war to be born. I mean, why does that be blood involved, really? Many countries have emerged in, from on the scene of history without bloody wars and, and bloodshed and, and sacrifices like that. But, of course, that whole story is a, is a way in which even historians, even today, rationalize the slaughter, rationalize the massacre by saying, well, something good came out of it. At least Canada was born on the battlefield. Therefore, the sacrifices were worthwhile. I don't believe that for a minute. Canadian historian Jack Powell's Last April saw the tragic passing, apparently by his own hand, of former LAPD narcotics officer and broadcaster Michael C. Rupert. Mike Rupert had become one of the most outspoken and compelling voices in the realm of independent journalism and analysis. He brought to the table a stupendous command of economic, historical, and political issues. Rupert represented a convergence of valuable traits which included an academic's restless intellect, a cop's eye for detail, 
a heartfelt passion for justice, and the street-level experience of a whistleblower who broke ranks with the people he trusted in the name of an all-too-common, onto-uncommon ethical code that he lived by. In the week that followed, the Global Research News Hour paid tribute to Mr. Rupert with a series of interviews with people who knew him and were influenced by his work. One of those was Barry Zwicker, longtime independent journalist and media critic based in Toronto. Barry was largely responsible for getting Rupert's analysis of 9-11 aired on Canadian television and paid tribute to him in his 2006 book, Towers of Deception, the Media Cover-Up of 9-11. One of the reasons that he inspires me, he was inspiring me and inspires me still and will continue to do so, is that uh, he, he rose, if you will, from the life of a hard-scrabble L.A. cop right up to a life of spiritual questing. You know, there are gurus who, who aren't turbaned, white-bearded East Indian ones, and there are prophets uh, who aren't referred to in ancient sacred texts. I think Mike really was both a, a, a guru and, and a prophet, he was both of those, and he could be a, sometimes a slightly grumpy guru. <laughs> Barry, <laughs> but, I was just wondering, um, you know, the, the passing of this figure, that it was, should go without comment uh, among mainstream and much of the alternative media. What, what does that say to you as a media critic? Well, you know, the, the, it, it's, it, just, it just proves the ongoing presence of cosmic injustice i mean the the, the 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 parallel i thought of was that around the untimely passing of mike um there was the untimely passing of a canadian finance minister and the the passing of this finance minister received massive days-long coverage and most of it was adulatory even though this finance minister was responsible at the provincial, the Ontario provincial level and the federal levels for cutting social services and cutting public transit funds, reducing taxes on the excessively rich and so on. And, and he gets all this coverage and at the, about the same time, the death of a courageous truth teller and a true prophet received no mainstream media coverage whatsoever. So that's a chasm to look into. That's what I think as a media critic and as a person, a person who strives in his own way to be to be spiritual. I mean, it's just a massive injustice. It just shows that a value system is uh, is cockeyed. Yeah. So um, I know that you've described, you've used the term litmus test to describe uh, the, uh, the activist and journalist response to alternative explanations of 9-11. I guess it's safe to say Mr. Rupert passed that test. He sure did. He, he just, he was so early. I, I, I do remember going to, he was on a bit of a lecture tour in, um, in um, November of one. For most people, 9-11 would be a bombshell. But he already then was able to place this bombshell um, in the framework of, of a more horrible, larger uh, reality of, of corruption, um, really, of society, if you will. 
so it, it and a lot of people have said this that he was the first one who 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 woke them up um, to to nine uh, eleven and 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 uh, as his book uh, the subtitle of his book crossing the rubicon has it the decline of the american empire at the end of the age of oil and i mean with the oil hasn't quite run out and it wouldn't run out overnight but basically he's on the right track the more that history unreals uh in front of us the more the the prophetic substance of michael rupert will become evident maybe some historians will grant him the respect that he so richly deserves that was uh, Toronto-based journalist and media critic Barry Zwicker on the uh, passing of uh, investigative journalist and broadcaster Michael Rupert. Guy McPherson is a professor emeritus of natural resources and the environment at the University of Arizona. McPherson has dedicated countless hours over the years assembling the best raw scientific data published on the subject of climate change. In recent years, after examining the data, he's come to the inescapable conclusion that the planet will not be habitable for human species long beyond the year 2030, and there is nothing the human species, for all its sophistication and technology, can do about it. I spoke to Dr. McPherson on February 7th of last year, following his presentation in Winnipeg. The interview aired the following week. Like as far as the, the carbon is concerned, I mean, I, I've heard some thoughts about maybe if we just plant more vegetation, that they eat up all that CO two like crazy, and uh, and thereby you know, that that could be a, uh, an attempt to to address that issue. But I, I don't. It doesn't. We're not aware of any similar mechanism that could eliminate methane. Yes, that's correct. And in addition, the magnitude of the tree planting effort to temporarily extract carbon dioxide from the atmosphere would be truly monumental. Talk about your war effort. Think about World War II times a million or so, planting trees in, in areas that they aren't currently found. Where's the water going to come from? Where's the energy going to come from to, to deliver that water? And it's a temporary phenomenon. Those trees die, you know. And, and when they and the do, CO2 that carbon goes dioxide back goes back up where it came from. Mm-hmm. And so we don't know of a technological solution or a fix that scales. There, there have been various geoengineering proposals that have been launched, but the journal literature is increasingly clear on this point that they won't work. Hmm. They can't work. We can't simply undo what we've done on the climate front by launching the techno-messiah, by, by, by some sort of technological solution to undo what we've done. People have looked at, at several of those How solutions How long have in they detail. been looking at those sorts of uh, techno fixes? Only quite recently. Only recently. You know, it's only become quite recent that people have, have become aware that, wow, mm. we're, we're in very dangerous terrain here. We have, we have let the, the beast out of the box, and it looks like we're threatened... Our own species is threatened. Of course, you know, we're driving 200 species a day to extinction as a result of various activities associated with industrial civilizations. Clear, we don't care much about them, but now we're talking about us, right? We're talking about us, so now we're very concerned about it. But that's only been within the last few years that that awareness has arisen. So it's only been within the last few years that people have contemplated how to turn this ship around. 
That's the the whole boiling frog scenario, where you put a frog in, in gradually warming up water. It, it will we won't realize that it's in trouble until it's too late. But as an evolutionary biologist, I mean, you're aware of the fact that we've had an unprecedented species extinction, and historically, whenever you have that scale of a species extinction, it's usually the dominant species that uh, ultimately perishes. Yes, we're in the midst of the sixth great extinction. It's happening more rapidly than any of the previous five great extinction events. And this is the only one driven by a single species. Mm-hmm. And that species is us. <laughs> and as we drive 200 species a day to extinction, it's pretty evident that you can't keep that up for a long period of time without taking your own species into the abyss. And no matter how clever we are, mm-hmm. and no matter what kind of technology we have developed, We need habitat just like every other organism on the planet. And if we create an environment that that doesn't include habitat for ourselves, we're done. Hmm. We're human animals. Emphasis on the animal part. And we need those elements for survival just like every other species. We need a certain level of oxygen. We need clean air. We need clean water. We need food to eat and so on. We need to maintain our body temperature. If we can't do that because we've created an entirely new planet, then we aren't going to survive. That was Dr. Guy McPherson speak to me last February on the climate dilemma. The 2014 Ebola outbreak in West Africa is being declared the deadliest on record and certainly the first of its kind in the region. Last September, the Global Research News Hour had a chance to interview investigative reporter John Rappaport. He believes the World Health Organization, the Centers for Disease Control, and other bodies are exaggerating the role of the Ebola virus in the death counts and speculated on how this new plague may be helping to advance a more cynical agenda. Well, there's a great deal that's suspect, but you have to go back to the basis of all these stories about so-called epidemics, and that is what diagnostic tests do they actually use in order to say that somebody has Ebola or West Nile or swine flu or so forth, because everything depends upon the UN reports, the CDC reports on the number of cases of Ebola and the number of deaths. I mean, that's the basis of the entire story. So as a reporter for the last 30 years covering these situations, I've analyzed the diagnostic tests that are used and found them to be completely unreliable, useless in actually identifying which people have which virus, which disease, etc., etc. And so everything is up for grabs. And in fact, most of the diagnoses in these situations are what we would call eyeball diagnoses. The patient walks into a clinic or is carried into a clinic, has certain symptoms which are very generalized symptoms like fever, sore throat, muscle pain, headache, diarrhea, and are immediately diagnosed with the disease of the moment, such as Ebola or swine flu, when in fact that person could be suffering from a number of uh, different conditions caused by different things. So yes, the entire basis of all of this uh, story promotion is highly suspect. Mm -hmm. 
So when you hear in the the uh, World Health Organization's Ebola response mode wrap, mode roadmap report uh, just released uh, yesterday, they talk about the total number of probable confirmed and suspected cases uh, in the realm of five thousand three hundred and thirty five. Uh, with 5,357 cases that have been diagnosed. You don't trust those numbers? No, I don't. Not at all. In fact, on September 9th, the Washington Post ran a story in which they stated that in Liberia, only 31% of the diagnosed cases of Ebola had been confirmed by a laboratory. (laughs) Only 31%. And then you have to ask yourself, on top of that, what tests are these labs actually using? Because, as I've said, the standard tests are completely unreliable. So what we're dealing with here is doctors standing in clinics and hospitals, patients wheeled in or walking in, looking at the patients and saying, well, okay, this has got to be Ebola, so let's put this person in as isolated a situation as we can. In fact, let me just give you one precedent for this. In the so-called pandemic of swine flu in 2009, which turned out to be a complete dud, uh, Cheryl Atkinson of CBS News reported in October of 2009 that the CDC had actually stopped counting cases of Ebola, of uh, swine flu in the United States. They had told state public health agencies who report these numbers to the CDC, who add them up, to stop sending in numbers. And the supposed reason was, well, we know that this is an epidemic, and we know that all these people coming into clinics and hospitals have swine flu. But in fact, as Cheryl Atkinson and others revealed, the overwhelming number of these people who had blood samples sent to laboratories in the United States, I'm talking about 84%, came back negative for swine flu and for any other kind of flu. That was John Rappaport, an investigative uh, journalist we spoke to in September. Ukraine has been a subject of considerable concern to the show, considering the extent to which the facts are being distorted. The Global Research News Hour has run several programs on this topic. One of our interview guests was Roger Annis. Annis is a Vancouver-based writer and anti-war activist who attended an anti-war conference in Yalta in the Crimea. Annis elaborated on the Cold War propaganda dominating the discussion around Ukraine, the Ukraine situation and its resemblances to the propaganda of 30 years ago. He also addressed the legitimacy of the Crimean referendum and detailed the state of the anti-war movement in Ukraine currently. In, in February and March, the people of Crimea looked at this coming to power of a new right-wing government in Kiev and said, we don't want anything to do with this. We want out. We've only been part of Ukraine for the past 50 years. We want nothing to do with this uh, right-wing government and uh, what was by all evidence then uh, uh, a course towards civil war against anyone that opposed its pro-European, pro-austerity direction. And so NATO's not used to get, basically getting a slap in the face by, by um, you know, comparatively small uh, nations or nationalities as they received in, in Crimea. Um, and the confluence of interests that I mentioned earlier, of course, is also that Russia had an interest in making sure that 
NATO did not sort of complete its mission uh, with respect to Crimea and effectively bring it under NATO uh, Western power tutelage. So that's a real added dimension to the situation. That's why we had such a sharp turn in March uh, to an intensification of the um, propaganda war against Russia. And I would say a definitive end to objective news reporting of what was going on. It was just propaganda after that. And it was because NATO was just enraged that the people of Crimea said, we don't want to be part of the future you're carving out for for Ukraine, so Mm. we're out of here. Uh, They voted in their majority to secede and join the Russian Federation. You you were in Yalta two weeks? Uh, a total of one region? week. Uh, I was I was in Crimea for a total of one week. Okay. Yeah. You were well. That that's an important point that uh, you were in the Crimean region. What we've been hearing on this side uh, of the, the the propaganda matrix is that uh, you know the Russian troops moved in and people were kind of they were voting in this uh, referendum, but you have all these this. Tr- forceful, imperious troop presence there, and so they weren't necessarily voting freely. From the people that you you, you, you must have talked to, uh, what, what were their reactions to the way this, uh, uh, their exercise of their uh, democratic will was being portrayed? Yeah, I mean, my limited experience in Crimea, and I'll call it, I'll be quite honest and call it limited, but also I think the more su- more substantially the, the reporting that was, um, even in the Western media at the time, was not bad. Uh, they, they'd had reporters there or they were, you know, prepared to be objective in the reporting. There's no question the majority of Crimean people wanted out of the way of this civil war course of the Kiev governing regime. I don't think there's that many people that... Um, uh, that many interests in the West that uh, would deny that. Was it a kind of perfect democratic process? Well, I don't think you can get under conditions of near war. So no, it wasn't. Did the majority of people uh, of Crimea clearly express a, a view and an opinion on the future? Yes, they did. They voted to leave, to to uh, join with the, with the Russian Federation. Did Russia facilitate that? No question. Uh, Russia had compelling national interests to do so, but the presentation of this as a, as a you know, as a quasi-military intervention by Russia that cowed and and uh, threatened the Crimean people into voting for, uh, for a secession and to join the Russian Federation is quite false, and uh, it's borne out by the events themselves. How many, um, how many. Um, Political ruptures of the character of Crimea secession does one ever see with relatively little loss in life? You can count on one hand the number of people lost their lives in Crimea. That was Roger Annis on uh, his uh, trip to uh, Yalta and the anti-war conference there. Well, without question, a major event that hit Canadians was the Ottawa shooting of October 22nd. The noted poet Uh, Former Canadian diplomat and English professor Peter Dale Scott has written extensively on the subject of deep political events. He has a new book out. Uh, In a feature-length interview, which aired shortly after the attack by Michael Zihaf Bibo, Professor Scott discussed how the Ottawa attack betrayed the characteristics of a deep political event. Uh, you, You talk about these sort of deep, political events, and I'm wondering what constitutes such an event, and if this attack in Ottawa constitutes such an event. Yes, um, well, in a general way, I mean, a good example would be 9-11. Uh, it's, uh, it, it's something that, uh, if once, at least those of us who have been living in America We've had the Kennedy assassination, we had Watergate, we had Iran-Contra, 
and we've become sort of used to the idea that there are, are, events are going to happen which are very important, but we're not going to know everything about them, and particularly if there's some kind of subsequent investigation, as there was in the, both the Kennedy assassination and also 9-11, a commission is set up, and they uh, come up with findings, and people start to look at those findings, and they see they ho don't hold up. In the case of the 9-11 commission, even one of the chairmen has said that the CIA wasn't leveling with them, they didn't get to the bottom of it. So a deep event is one of these events that, although it's important, uh, we don't get the whole we don't get the whole truth. And when I talk about structural deep events, and everyone I've just mentioned is a structural deep event, it affects the history of the country. Now your question is about Ottawa. I think this is a deep event because there's some some mysterious things. He, that Mr. Zihaf Bibov, he was not on their list of radicalized, and yet they know everything about him. They uh, apparently he had been his name had turned up on the hard drive of somebody who was arrested for terror activities. They didn't put him on the uh, list. Uh, well, that's kind of mysterious, and it reminds me of Lee Harvey Oswald, the alleged assassin of Kennedy, he he went very political in the weeks before the Kennedy assassination, and the FBI who had had him on the watch list, they took him off the watch list. And it's very clear in the case of Oswald, they took him off the watch list so that he would not be under surveillance of the day that Kennedy was in Dallas. And I wonder, and of course I don't have any evidence, but I wonder if Mr. Zahaf was not on their list of radicalized because they didn't want to have him under surveillance the day that he went shooting. Uh, they, it's, and, and the other thing about these deep events is that they're followed by uh, increased uh, secret powers for the deep state, and that does seem to be the case with Mr. Zahaf Bebo because... Harper, uh, oh, that, uh, you know, Harper was, gave a speech to Parliament the next day, and he said that, and I'm quoting here from a news account, uh, that authorities need greater power to track, arrest, and detain terror subjects, and, and this is a quote from his speech, the work that is already underway will be expedited, close quote. And, and we learned that they were having a series of terrorist um, games, uh, war games, just before this attack. And uh, I, I'm, I thought the CBC was rather strange when they reported this, because they said, on the one hand, um, that they'd been having these uh, war games and that they, they were uh, imagining case where people came from Syria and attacked in Canada. But this man had never been to Syria. He wanted to go to Syria, but he was mentally deranged. That was Teeter Dale Scott from a program that aired on Remembrance Week. And that concludes our look at the year 2014. Uh, we'll be back next week with a brand new installment of the uh, Global Research News Hour. I hope you'll join us. 
You can listen to our show every week on campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on partner radio stations across the country. You can also download the show at the website globalresearch.ca. Our show is also live streamed Mondays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network. If you have any feedback on this or any of our past shows, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. Thanks for joining us.